0: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk.
1: Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Alex Sullivan. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Wenderlich podcast. Welcome to episode four for season 10. And This episode was recorded on Saturday, the 21st of March. Happy Equinox, everybody. For release on the 8th of April, 2020. This show is sponsored by The Bug. Parachukina Longichorus and by the singleton design pattern, whether you like it or not. I'm Drew Freeman here with my crazy ant co-host Alex Sullivan. <laughs> Thanks, Drew. This episode, we welcome Philippe Babich, co-author
0: of Kotlin Co-Routines by Tutorials. Philippe is a professional developer with extensive knowledge of Android, Kotlin, and Java. Developing since 2015, he's amassed a great deal of experience and finished projects using only best practices, building high-quality products. He's a huge Kotlin lover and preacher, mostly focused on Kotlin coroutines
1: and other low-level concurrency mechanisms. On this episode, Philip is going to be giving us the ins and outs of Kotlin coroutines. Later, Alex in preparation for our upcoming Flutter show, we'll talk about his delving into some Flutter. Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Hello. It is great to have you on the show. You were with us on the Google IO livecast last yeah. season and um Right now, it doesn't sound like there's going to be a Google IOS livecast this season because Google I/O is basically saying we're not doing anything.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. You know, last year when I was there, uh, it was my first IO and it was just amazing to see like thousands of people uh, gathering together and talking about uh, our favorite things, technology, Android and other topics. And it was really cool to see all the new products, all the new uh, APIs for Android and so on and so forth. So I'm really curious to see if there's going to be any kind of I.O. But as you mentioned, we might not have
1: one this year. Yeah, it's... Uh... For historical purposes, for people reflecting back on the show, people watching uh, watching or listening to the show now uh, realize that California has just gone down in lockdown for the uh, coronavirus, and that's going to hit Google. We probably will hear the same about WWDC coming up soon. They have gone to a completely online show. Uh, we talked about that some uh, last week on the uh, uh, last episode. Excuse me. And uh, it's just remarkable what's going on. Philip, where are you located? Uh, in Croatia, in Europe, If you've heard about it. and how are things how are things there with with the virus? Um,
2: so people are going into lockdown as well. Uh, we have uh, government issues uh, safety measures, so we can't really go outside for the next month or so, or at least shouldn't. Uh, all groupings of more than five people are kind of banned, so to say, Five. (laughs) Yeah. It's far more, or actually if you're under five and if everyone is safe, so if no one is interacting with, you know, a bunch of people, then you should be fine to hang out, but only at your homes. So it's a bit crazy, but those measures are really good because we haven't had a lot of cases only up to a hundred and something, I think. So the contamination is kind of spreading really slowly and we are trying to stop it overall. So it's not as crazy as some parts of the world, but you know, we're still doing precaution.
1: And of course we hope during this time that everybody is staying safe and, and following general governmental orders and the fact that we can get through this and start having uh, conventions Google again. You. <laughs> yeah, well, you, well, that's it. We just we're just everybody stay healthy so we can have another Google <laughs> IO and WWDC. So <laughs> Strangely enough, normally what I ask is what do you do when you're not coding and the there <laughs> <process> are <laughs> other people to interact with?
2: Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so uh, ironically enough, I do a lot of uh, conventions and I do a lot of public speaking. So, uh, for example, we I did uh, about 10 or a dozen uh, conferences last year or in the past two years. Oh, wow. Uh, so I've been traveling around, uh, kind of had an idea of cutting back on conferences, which It's starting to, you know, to happen by itself. Um, But yeah, (laughs) yeah. unfortunately. This is a good time to make that resolution. (laughs) So uh, other than that, I organize a lot of um, initiatives in the community here in OSEC. So like a local community. For example, we do the Android Academy initiative where we gather 20, 25 students. I say students, but it's just, you know, people of all ages. Uh, to teach them Kotlin and Android to help them get IT jobs or maybe first internships, things like that. Um, I used to do a lot of writing, but I haven't had the time for that as I'm finishing college as well, just finishing my master's degree. Wow. So yeah, there's a lot of things. a <laughs> <So> multi-faceted <man. laughs> Yeah, a lot of things going on. And currently, I'm mostly in my home doing work, recording videos, as you can see, and Occasionally hopping on podcasts. Alright, so we, we've we,
1: we've talked about the, the the computers the conferences the writing Is there anything non computer for fun that you do?
2: Yeah, so that might sound a bit sad, but yeah, I do non computer stuff although it's still quite geeky So <laughs> I play Magic the Gathering uh, and I play <laughs> yeah, And yeah. I play uh, D&D with my friends so it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all the nerdy stuff. Yeah, um, and, and there's how,
1: how how would you describe your favorite magic deck? Oh, mm. okay. So
2: my favorite one is an Eldrazi deck, which is probably why people hate me when I play it. Uh, <laughs> but I'm I'm still new. I'm I've been playing for I think about five or six months. I'm trying to build up new decks and everything, so I'm still trying to find myself. I guess. But big creatures hitting people in the face,
1: <laughs> I said. And by DMing, are you talking classic Dungeons and Dragons, or are you DMing something else?
2: Um, so I I did one DM, uh, like one campaign where I DMed, and it was Lovecraftian inspired. Um, but now I'm, Ooh, yeah, that uh, but now fun. I'm playing, uh, and my friend, I'm just a player, and my friend is a DM, and we're doing this kind of Uh, adventurers league, uh, kind of game where every, uh, session is like a mini mission for itself. And we're trying to gain more, uh, Mm. traction and, you know, more fame to the adventurers
1: league. So. It's really cool. Are you trying to do the uh, the dungeon, uh, the DMing and the D&D and, and the like? Are you trying to do that virtually now or is that just sort of on hold?
2: Yeah, so it's a bit on hold, but then again, there's only about five of us who play. So we're allowed to, to gather up and, and play
1: together. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> They're right under that yeah, limit. Yeah, just <laughs>
1: right under that. What happens if there's six? If, if there's a, a mom and a dad and four kids, you have to kick one of the kids out? Yeah, that's it. That's, now you have that, three kids. That's it. Five. Five is the maximum. Yeah, I think uh, Pennsylvania, the state I'm in, just went down to 10. So it, it's crazy out there. Let's talk about something a little more uplifting. Let's talk about <laughs> Kotlin routines. Yeah. Can you give me... Very uplifting. Give me the 40,000-foot the, the view of what Kotlin coroutines are.
2: Okay, so um, a lot of people, when they look at Kotlin coroutines, they see something really, you know, new and crazy and different from everything else they've experienced, I guess. But in fact, it's actually really simple uh, when you get down to it. It's just a way to run your code, which supports functions uh, which you can pause and resume at a different point in time. So. For example, uh, I like to compare it to like mo- uh, everyday activities, for example, cooking. Uh, if you're baking cookies, you can just put them in the oven and forget about them for like 20 minutes, half an hour, or even more. And then you come back and you pick up those cookies and you can eat them. You can think of coroutines some, as uh, a similar concept where you can run one function and then just let it run in the background, so to say. You. Pause it, or at least uh, suspend a part of it, and then you proceed to do something else. Once the, um, let's say, the da- data you, you are trying to fetch, or the value you are trying to, to compute, or something like that, is finished and ready for you, you can just pick it up and um, continue with your
1: program. So that's that is a great analogy. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I I mean I I've been looking for a good analogy of, of asynchronous in general, and that is that's just lovely. <laughs> and you cookies. get cookies. And you get cookies.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you can also compare it to like making a sandwich or just boiling something. You know, analogies are just out there.
1: Oh, oh, Alex is going <laughs> to like come in with <laughs> Alex is going to come in with avocado toast now. That is
0: true. You could
1: compare it to making avocado toast, and should. <laughs>
0: One thing that I find it kind of hard to wrap my head around is um when you're using coroutines how is it how is it fundamentally different from when you're when you're doing stuff in a non suspending world like let's say that I wanted to uh I don't know make a network call to get some data and then just show it uh in the UI how how would that work in coroutines versus using I don't know an async task or or anything else in this uh, world Okay so in this crazy world of yeah, bars
2: Crazy world of Android um so it's not essentially that much different from other concepts, uh, but it does let you do some cool things. Um, for example, when you're using an async task or maybe just uh, go even you know simpler and creating your own thread or a runable, um, you're essentially creating your own threads or new threads and allocating more memory uh, to run those tasks. Um, then when you do run those threads and finish some other function and you go back to your previous code, you have to worry about uh, either callbacks or maybe even starting a new thread or posting back to the main thread. So there's a couple of things that are going going on there and you have to do everything manually, more or less. Coroutines kind of want to help with all that and let you do as little as possible or at least make you do as little as possible. So when you do start a coroutine, there are different uh, dispatcher, dispatchers uh, or dispatcher instances which are actually thread pools. So you don't have to worry about creating your own threads or even uh, like choosing which thread pool you're going to use. They are predefined for you and optimized in some way. Um, then once the value is uh, computed and you get it back, you can use it. You don't have to worry about pushing to the main thread uh, using, for example, run on UI thread or something else you can launch another coroutine which uses the main thread dispatcher or something like that and then it does does so for you automatically. Uh, And when you get even deeper into coroutines you don't even have to do that. All you have to do is run one coroutine and fetch a piece of data from a different thread using a different builder. So all the threading mechanisms, synchronization and so on and so forth is uh, executed by the coroutine mechanism. Now that's not much To begin with, you know, it's just a smarter way to deal with threading, which is why there are other uh, things as well. For example, the cancellation policy. If you're working with uh, threads manually or for example, an async task or even retrofit, you know, in general retrofit callbacks, there's all these uh, things you have to do about uh, cancellation. So if the user leaves a screen or the request uh, fails and things like that.
0: and that's so you don't leak <laughs> yeah, memory so you don't or leak something memory, along those lines. So things.
2: you don't cause overhead, uh, and that usually works uh, fine. But it's very easy to leak memory, as you know. Um, so coroutines huh. try to circumvent that by uh, adding a special cancellation policy within the mechanism. So what happens is, if you start uh, one coroutine, for example, and you start it on the main thread, you can create a new smaller coroutine within that uh, piece of code. Which will fetch, uh, for example, the user from a backend service. If you cancel the main coroutine, the fetch from the main, uh, from the API service will be cancelled as well, because of the suspend mechanism uh. and because the system knows how to send the signal to a thread, which says, "Okay, this coroutine has finished. You should stop now." Now. There are different Mm. ways you can do this and different ways uh, this functions depending on which coroutine builder you use or which dispatcher, but more or less it's pretty safe and it works out of the box. So you don't have to worry about cleaning up resources after you start an API call.
0: Well, that's pretty magical. (laughs) That definitely gets rid of a lot of extra money if they could. So you you mentioned dispatchers and coroutine builders what is a dispatcher because and i think that relates to another confusion i have which is you like i've heard of coroutines kind of talked about as a replacement for threads but they actually like sit above threads right or like what is the relationship between a coroutine and a thread i think i just asked three (laughs) questions
2: um yeah i mean so (laughs) overloaded that's kind of the the reason why some people think coroutines are magical or hard to get into uh, once you, yeah, <laughs> magic. Once you start uh, learning about them, there's just so many questions going around, and there's you know quite a lot of concepts you have to grasp. But if you go one step at a time and you, you know examine one concept at a time, you should be fine. You should uh, learn it pretty easily. Um, so a coroutine is often described as a lightweight thread. The reason why mm. it's described like that is that it doesn't necessarily create a new thread it just uses the thread pools very uh, in a very optimal way. For example, you can la- launch mm. hundreds of thousands of coroutines and they will perform, uh, you know, they won't block the, the UI or won't create a lot of overhead to block the application in general. Or maybe, you know, burn your phone or something like that. Uh, the way <laughs> things work is every single coroutine gets a dispatcher, which is essentially like a replacement for a thread pool or just like a so if you can compare it to other mechanisms, you can compare it to a scheduler in RxJava, for example, or an executor mm. in Java in general. So it's just a mechanism which says, okay, uh, you have this piece of code and we want you to run it in this uh, thread pool. You can do your scheduling from there on. Uh, the dispatcher communicates to the operating system and then the operating system uh, schedules those API calls or functions uh, which are on the stack. So. You don't create new threads. You don't create a lot of overhead. There's just a bun- bunch of function calls in the background, which the system then um, optimizes and schedules for you. So they're, you know, they're much better, or I won't say you know necessarily much better, that but they are better because they give you the uh, ability to communicate to the system more directly compared to other mechanisms, mm. which are pretty high level. If that makes sense. Mm.
0: Yeah, it does make sense. So so dispatchers kind of match to are are they like a direct mapping to thread pools? Is it is like the Yeah, is it is it is the I.O. dispatcher just like, yep, this is four threads or whatever sitting in the yep. background, or is it a little so, more complex than that? Yeah,
2: it's a bit more complex, but uh when when you look at it in like the bare bones and everything, it's just a way to communicate to the system which thread pool should be used. Um <clears throat> of course oh. the, Yeah, so okay. the dispatcher kind of also describes, uh, you know, how the thread switching is going to happen uh, and that leads to the thread pool. So, for example, the unconfined dispatcher, which is a bit weird when you look at the documentation, is a dispatcher which doesn't necessarily have a thread pool behind it, but instead it says, okay, if this coroutine should switch to a different thread, just leave it as is, you know, don't switch to a new thread, just keep the current mm. thread running the code. So, oh, yeah, interesting. so they are not directly relatable to a thread pool, but they communicate to thread pools, uh, whether a function should run in, you know, the IO thread pool or the default thread pool or the main thread.
0: Okay, cool. That makes sense. What about um, coroutine
2: builders? Where are they like, how do you, how do you do a coroutine? Yeah, so <laughs> just like the name states, you know, a coroutine builder is just a function which uh, builds a coroutine. Um, and they are essentially simple functions which take in a few parameters. Uh, They can take in um, the coroutine start parameter which is just a way to say if your coroutine will be uh, started immediately or lazily you know if when you call uh, Mm. start yourself. Then they take in a parameter called the coroutine context which uh, is another topic for itself but essentially it is a set of rules the coroutine will use. So One uh, set of the rules uh, you can pass in as the coroutine context is the dispatcher, and another set of rules is the uh, coroutine exception handler, which handles exceptions, and a third set of rules is the coroutine job, which is essentially the piece of work as an object, you know, represented as an object. So you can pass that in, kind of like a runnable, yeah, kind of like a runnable, so to say. Um, Which you can cancel, of course. Uh, And then the last parameter would be the actual block of code, the lambda block that you want to run in a certain thread or thread Hmm. pool. Okay, cool.
0: And are there, um, so do you have to supply all of that stuff whenever you're launching a new coroutine? So uh,
2: most of the parameters have uh, default parameters or default arguments. Uh, The only, like, parameter you have to or argument you have to pass in is the lambda block because it kind of makes sense. You know, you can't run a default Lambda block for a coroutine, yeah. it wouldn't do anything. What, what code are you yeah, running? Just a print <laughs> statement or something, yeah. Uh, so you have to pass in That's like cool. a Lambda block. Um, the start parameter is, uh, you know, the default one, which is immediate execution. So you don't have to start the coroutine yourself. The uh, context parameter is the default context, which is essentially empty, but it pulls the context from the coroutine scope you're using which is another concept. <laughs> <In> another way. <laughs> yeah, another concept. So um, basically the default context is, okay, I have a context within the uh, scope of things I'm doing and just take that. You don't have to change anything. So for example, if your current coroutine scope is uh, main thread bound, it means the coroutine will be main thread bound as well. If it's, you know, IO dispatchers bound, it will be in the background uh, by default.
0: Okay. Yeah. So. So it just takes, like, whatever the, the parent yeah, is yeah, or whatever yeah. it's it's within. Yeah, it
2: inherits the parent. And that... Basically.
0: Okay, cool. So if you... So so that implies to me that you can, like, launch sub-coroutines within coroutines. Yeah, so... And then it, it kind of just trickles yeah, up. Yeah, so
2: once you uh, launch a coroutine, which... Uh, so you need the, the coroutine context if you're trying to configure it in a different way. You need the start parameter if you want to start it lazily or, uh, you know, you want it immediately you need the lambda block to run some piece of code, and you need to run a coroutine or launch a coroutine on a coroutine scope. Um, I mentioned this, so the coroutine scope, uh, you know, a scope, as the name states, is like a fixed uh, timeline or something like that, which just says how long the coroutine will run or when it will be canceled. For example, you have the global scope, which is uh, just a general scope which runs as long as the application runs. a good usage for that will be uh, if you have some upload task or something which you don't really re- expect a result from. You can launch a coroutine in the global scope and it will run as long as the app runs. So it can upload for you in the background. Um, but you also have custom scopes. You have scopes which run uh, as long as the activity is active or a fragment or a view model uh, if you're using architecture components. So basically they are used to help that cancellation and just to avoid any leaks. So once you launch a coroutine, if the scope dies, so to say, if the activity is destroyed, then the coroutine will be canceled as well. So to clean up resources. Oh, cool. And, sorry. Yeah, uh, and uh, once you, sorry, just wanted to mention this. And once you uh, launch a coroutine on a coroutine scope, it inherits the context from the coroutine scope. And then uh, each coroutine builder usually has a pass parameter called call the coroutine scope, which inherits from the parent, and then you can call uh, nested coroutines, as you mentioned.
0: Okay, cool. And so so that kind of sounds like if we're in maybe RxJava world, which hopefully um, a good number of listeners are familiar to, you would get a disposable back when you subscribe to something, and then maybe an on destroy of your activity or on clear to your view model, you'd dispose of that coroutine. So the the, the scope sounds kind of similar to that, where there's like... It lives for that amount of time, and then eventually it gets it gets yeah, killed. Yeah,
2: so it's it's quite similar, but uh, the scope itself uses an internal mechanism for that, which is called the you know the job as I mentioned. It just creates a parent job, which can be cancelled, and as you can launch a coroutine within a coroutine, you can you inherit its uh, job uh, essentially, and then you have like a job hierarchy. So once a single job is cancelled within the hierarchy, everything gets cancelled. Unless you uh, use specific jobs, which are called supervisor jobs, and then you don't really, you know, they supervise their children. So you don't uh, cancel the parents if the uh, child fails as well. So it's kind of like a disposable bag uh, in essence, but it actually composes uh, like a couple of different mechanisms. So both the disposable bag uh, in form of a job, the exception handler, uh, which, you know, handles exceptions, which you didn't uh, catch uh, in the coroutine itself and the dispatcher or threading, which uh, is, you know, whatever you want it to be by default. So it's a bit more than just a disposable bag. Okay, cool.
0: There's a lot going on. <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I'm still trying to kind of um, wrap my head around is so that from what I've seen, one of the main benefits you get from using coroutines is that you, you get to write code that uses different threads, kind of like it's just normal code. So like I've seen examples where you say, you know, Val, my dogs (laughs) equals fetch dogs from network. And then next line right below that, uh, my list, you know, set my dogs with the new dogs. And normally from what I'm used to, you'd have to, you know, make an async task or use RxJava to get a callback when it's done, fetching the dogs, and then you'd have to make sure you're back on the main thread. And there's a whole kind of like dance to it. So does coroutines just let you like escape all of that and just, just normal?
2: Yeah, so the the answer is kind of yes and no. Uh, You always have to. Good, the best type of answer. (laughs) Yeah, uh, the, you always have to launch a coroutine before you use something called a suspend function, which is another, Term for its own. Mm. Uh, So every (laughs) coroutine can be suspended. And as I mentioned uh, with the cookie example, you can suspend a coroutine and let a piece of it run in the background. And then once uh, it's ready, you can resume the code and continue on. So if you think about it, what happens, what's the prime example, for example, let's say, uh, you launch a coroutine, which is on the main thread. It uses the main dispatcher. And you would think that if you have a blocking call um, on the main thread, things will go wrong, right? But if you call a blocking function, which is also a suspend function, for example, a retrofit request, what will happen is the parent coroutine will be paused and main thread will be released. So the main thread can draw the UI and do everything the main thread does. And Then once the call finishes, you can, uh, the signal uh, from the background thread comes back to the main thread, for example, or the coroutine, and then it seems as if you're just calling a blocking call on the main thread without any consequences. But in... in a, yeah, oh, wow. And there's <laughs> where, uh, that's where the magic happens. So, you're not essentially blocking the main thread, you're releasing it, suspending the coroutine which wraps around the main thread, and then once the value is fetched, you can continue just writing regular code, which you mentioned, you know, you just call... Uh, val something equals you know api service fetch this and then the next line of code is whatever you want to do with that piece of data
0: wow (laughs) that sounds like it just simplifies so much yeah
2: i mean Um, it's a cool concept and it's very weird when you look at it uh for the first time or the first 10 times even but in essence, it's a just just a smart way to communicate within the system itself, you know? It's just a bunch of signals from one thread to the uh, another thread or the main threads to synchronize things. A term
0: I've also heard in connection with coroutines or, or as the community discusses it is um, like async await. And I know, I don't know if you've used like JavaScript or anything like that, but they kind of have this mechanism where you'd say, await my thing and then do something with that thing and await my other thing and um, and that sort of thing. Is there? Do you have to do anything like that within coroutines? Do you have to do you have to specify like wait for this suspending function to complete, then give me something, or is it all just does it all just flow? Uh,
2: so async await is uh, apart from Kotlin coroutines, which is kind of what we're talking about here is quite a common concept uh, actually. So C Sharp has it as well. I think Python has it and even C++ or C have it on like a framework basis or a library basis. So mm. it's very uh, often uh, and it's quite a popular concept. You can do the same thing in coroutines and as it's one of the coroutine builders. <clears throat> so basically there, mm. there's a couple of coroutine builders. There's the launch which simply launches a coroutine. You know, it's pretty dumb, it's, uh, you know, Fire and forget, so to say. You have the with context builder, which says, okay, take this context, uh, which is used usually a different dispatcher to switch to a different thread, and return a value from this coroutine. So you usually use it to, to fetch something from the API or the database. And then there's the async await builder, which should be used when you have multiple things you want to run in the parallel. So what you do is you create multiple different async blocks. The uh, async block creates or uses a dispatcher and uh, uses a thread from the thread pool to launch the call immediately, and then you know it's being processed in the background. So if you can create three or four or five or you know any number of async calls, they will essentially all start at the same time. But once you call a wait on any of them, uh, it suspends the parent coroutine and waits for the data to be compiled. Um, so what you can do is. Create five different async calls and then await them all uh, in one place. For example, if new function call and basically the the await call or the suspension will be as long as the longest call uh, you know is running. So, for example, if you have five different calls and three of them are one second calls, one is like a half a second and one is five seconds, it won't take whatever the total number of seconds that is, eight and a half. It will take only five seconds because... That's a fast math. Yeah, quick math. Um, it will only take um, five seconds, which is the longest call, as you're just, uh, you know, suspending for the longest call and waiting for it to finish. So you can do async and wait.
0: And that's if you want to, like, combine everything into, into one so that they all are just flowing at the same yeah, time.
2: Basically, if oh, you have, cool. you know, if you're fetching the user profile and you have to fetch another piece of information or maybe you're trying to... to synchronize and combine three different endpoints, which kind of have the same things in your UI. And then you can combine mm-hmm. all of them. You know, each will have its own async call. You await for all of them at one place. And then once every, uh, every async call or every piece of value is ready, you just move on.
0: So then that leads me to, a, to the most contentious issue within the community. Let's say that I'm using RxJava yeah. for everything <laughs> in my app. Should I migrate over to coroutines or or what are some of the, like the pros and cons between kind of the way lots of people are doing it now with RxJava and what coroutines can can get you
2: um, so that that's all always a big question and uh, I'm honestly afraid to say Should I ready my pitchfork? <laughs> yeah, I'm cl- kind of afraid what I'm going to say because you know, all the people there are going to be knocking on my door. Uh, but All right, pitchfork, pitchfork ready. ready, yeah. Uh, but it, essentially, I can't say a definitive answer to that. I usually say to people that it depends. So, for example, I've worked on projects which um, are kind of—they're not legacy, but they are really long projects, and they're been, they're, they've been—they've been refactored and improved over the years. But they still have a ton of old Java within, and just switching everything to to Kotlin coroutines wouldn't make sense. Um, for, that's for one, for one reason. For the other reason is you don't necessarily have to s- migrate everything, so you can slowly migrate and just create new calls, new API calls within coroutines and leave the rest uh, in Rx. Um, you can also translate between Rx to coroutines or the Kotlin coroutines flow and vice versa. So they are kind of interoperable as well. Um, I guess the the best answer would be, you know, if you're working on a new project and you have kind of the freedom to to choose your framework and you had some time to to learn about coroutines, I would say go for coroutines. Um, For for example, some of my friends uh, have been working with Rx as well and they just switched to a different position or a different company and they tried out uh, Kotlin coroutines and they, they just loved it because... They say it's much simpler than what they used to have to write uh, using Rx, um, and I guess that's because mostly, or at least most of the developers which use Rx in their projects, use it for the very basic things uh, which are API calls or fetching from the database. I, in my opinion, I think it, that's kind of the overkill because you can achieve the same thing with even Retrofit. You know, you don't even have to use coroutines; you can use callbacks. Even though callbacks may not be the prettiest solution, they are simpler than uh, you know learning a lot, a lot of Rx to be able to use it, uh, you know, properly and in an optimal way. So you know, if you have the freedom to try them out on a new project or maybe just migrate a small bit of code to test it out, then I say go for it. Uh, and that's as long as you're just you know using it for the very basics, which are API calls, uh, you know, databases, things like that. But there are cases where I would say streams of data, and I don't necessarily say uh, Rx in this case, uh, are more useful, for example, if you're doing a lot of with uh, Bluetooth or sensors, things like that. For example, I had, uh, or in my former company, there was a project which used, uh, or they built a smart system for houses, and everything revolved around uh, communication via sensors, Bluetooth, so on and so forth. Rx was really useful there because, you know, everything is a stream of data and you can com- create complex streams to just handle everything uh, out of the box. So you don't have to do anything manually. In that case, I guess you can go, go for Rx, but you can also use the Kotlin flow, which is kind of the new thing. <laughs>
1: uh,
2: so it just depends on, you know, if you, if you have a lot of knowledge of Rx and you've used it for years, I guess that's easier for you. But... I wouldn't say no to coroutines. I would say, you know, give it a try. Just see who, see what happens.
1: So it comes down once again to right job, or right tool for the right job. Yeah. But there's a newer technology. And if you're starting out, try the new technology and see how it works for you. Yeah, exactly.
0: I do. I think that that's an interesting point around, you know, a lot of people in the community have been using RxJava really just to make a network call or to get something from the database to do this one off task that they want to do in a background thread and then get back onto the main thread. And RxJava, I mean I love RxJava, wrote a book from Ray <laughs> Wendelik about RxJava. I'm a huge fan. But it's definitely it that like that's not the, the prime purpose of that framework. The idea there is is streams of data. So so to me for all these people that are that are using ArcShop in this way, coroutine seems like a no-brainer. It's just from my perspective, for for the limited amount that I've used it, like a lot less code yeah. and a lot less overhead. And then Flow <laughs> is an interesting follow-up case for like, well, you know, when should we use ArcShop? But yeah, I think that was a great that was a great takeoff. Yeah,
2: so Flow is is another topic on its own. Um, but I think, like, the one of the next things to, to ask would be, you know, is flow experimental still? Is it stable? Mm. Do they use it or not? Uh, and quite frankly, so what JetBrains does is they create the basis of the API, just like they did with coroutines. And then they proceeded to develop... Um, Here, like certain sections of the API, for example, uh, in early in coroutines, it was actors and producers, things like that, so special functions which create channels and the channel API. And then they see how it uh, fits in the community, in everyday use cases, things like that. So if they are, or at least I think, if they are satisfied with the usage, they are satisfied with the implementation, it's no longer experimental. Um, They did the same with flow, so, What they did was the base API, which is literally two interfaces, a flow and a flow collector, Um, and that's stable. And what they did with the experimental part of it is they created uh, several operators. As you have, uh, or not several, but hundreds of operators actually. As you have in Rx, you know, you have the merge operator, the map, flat map, and so on and so forth. So what they are doing currently, uh, to my knowledge, is they are trying to optimize those operators as much as they can, um, to reduce the overhead, to make them as fast as possible, make them as sensible as possible, because I know that some operators in Rx behave differently on the way you, you know combine them or you know, in which order you use them. They are trying to simplify that with flow. Um, so some operators are experimental. The base API is not, uh, and as I mentioned, one of my friends who previously used Rx a lot now also is using uh, Flow in um, their projects or whatever uh, they're working on currently, and they just love it. They they mentioned, you know, it's much simpler than Rx where you create a Flow and then you say, okay, I'm going to consume the values on the main thread, and that's it. Uh, you don't have to worry about using the wrong scheduler or the wrong... Um, Order of of operators or something similar, so it it is it has the the experimental flag, but it's just for the certain set of operators uh, or certain pieces of the API the base base of it, the cancellation policies, the um, context switching, you know the thread switching and everything that's pretty much uh, set in stone and should be fine to work work with
0: So one thing I think that we didn't uh, quite touch on was what what actually is flow so it sounds like it's like some parts of it are experimental but, <laughs> yeah, but what fundamentally is uh, flow so
2: <laughs> it's it's like a coroutine powered stream of data or exactly okay. that's what it is so they try to uh, so it's supposed to be a cold stream of uh, data which has coroutine support um this means basically that uh, just like with observables uh, which, or singles which don't emit data until you subscribe to them or don't run an API call if you don't subscribe to them, flows are just like that. You define an operation which is going to build uh, certain pieces of data and then they wait until you subscribe. Uh, once you subscribe or consume the flow, it starts uh, doing some work uh, using coroutines. So essentially you have the best of both worlds. You have the best of Rx in a way that you have a cold stream, you have, you know, hundreds of operators, but you also have the best of coroutines where flow supports cancellation, flow supports coroutine scopes, uh, so that in turn supports cancellation. They also support the suspend uh, mechanisms, so the biggest problem in current streams of data is back pressure, I guess. Uh, when you create too many uh, events or uh, you just can't consume enough of them uh, at some point in time, you either lose on data or have to block uh, one side of the, th- uh, the the channel, so to say. Um, what coroutines do is they receive the signals for pieces of data, and if the consumer is too slow, they just suspend the producer. So the producer will continue to receive oh, signals. That's interesting. But they will be suspended in a way that they won't send those uh, pieces of data to the consumer. Uh, just like if the consumer is, uh, c- you know, consuming too many events, is really fast, and the producer can keep up, can keep up. You can suspend the pro- uh, sorry, the consumer, and the producer will keep on sending the data while the consumer is uh, suspended. And it will slowly consume those events uh, so you don't really lose on data. There's always you know, buffers and things like that which you have to be uh, careful about, but I think they do it really simply that you don't really have to think that much about the whole implementation. That's cool.
0: So, so fundamentally Flow is kind of the coroutines version of like unobservable in RxJava. Yeah. And it has all the benefits of coroutines with cancellation and using suspending functions yeah. and yeah. all that sort of stuff.
1: Philip, that that is a lot of information to absorb, and I think that we really <laughs> dove deep into that. Um, I I I will admit, my my poor little iOS eyes glazed <laughs> a few times trying to follow it, but but uh, I think uh, Alex, you did a, a wonderful job uh, helping us take that apart and and learning a lot about it. In the meantime. Alex, you have been preparing for the new Flutter episode that's coming up by doing a little yeah. bit of Flutter playing. Uh, what have you discovered so far?
0: Yeah, so I've been I've been working on some personal apps, and I decided to use Flutter for them because I wanted them to be on iOS too, and it's cross-platform, so that's nice. What I've discovered is um, that Flutter kind of makes it a joy to build UI in a way that I had kind of forgotten about. It makes me a little ashamed to say it as as a um, hardcore Android supporter and Android engineer, but making UI with Flutter is just, it's so pain-free and so wonderful. So now I'm finding as I, you know, go to line up my constraint layout or I'm adding my recycler view in, um, I'm really sitting there going, ooh, <laughs> this is a lot of code. I'm adding a lot of stuff for this list. So it's been a really fun experience. And it's been so... Flutter uses Dart, which has also been a learning curve. Kind of in the opposite direction. I have to admit that, um, while I like Flutter, probably wouldn't choose Dart as the number one language to use, but it's mostly been fine. It's the sort of it's the sort of language that feels like it doesn't really get in your way. It's not uh, offering all of this amazing cool stuff, you know, it's not, this next generation language that lets you do these crazy things with your types or, or have wild, you know, expressions, but, but it doesn't feel like it really blocks me as I'm uh, building my, my personal apps. Um, So it's, it's been a pretty good experience. It's definitely something that I'm looking forward to um, tinkering with more. And I'm definitely looking forward to the episode too.
1: Yeah, it's going to be a lot of really interesting stuff there. Um I I'll, I'll be curious to learn more about Flutter especially because I've got my iOS app that I need to put on Android and <laughs> unfortunately it sounds like uh Flutter is one of those ground up kind of things not not one that oh, yeah. uh, I can just adapt and and move across. So we'll see how yeah. that goes philip i want to thank you for your time you can find philip online at twitter at f-i-l-b-a-b-i-c phil (laughs) Babic, yeah which is completely different from philip which which i just mangled horribly (laughs) (laughs) alex is on twitter at alex sullen 444 almost never And I am found (laughs) as podcast Drew. that's D-R-U, on Twitter. Again, rarely, just because everything else is going Mm -hmm. on. Of course, we want you to tune in uh, to the YouTube show so that you can hear our full episode with no edits, along with possibly a little bit of after show. In the meantime, Mm -hmm. um, I want to thank Philip for your time, and thank you for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was amazing. Coming up in two weeks, our next episode with Lee Moral, Sun and Shine, we'll be talking about SwiftUI in production. Coming up in four weeks, uh, the next Android episode, we're going to have Victoria Gonda on talking about Android test-driven development. So that's going to be very helpful. Um, I realize that we go Android one episode and iOS next episode, and a lot of our Android episode listeners don't really want to know what's on the next iOS episode. <laughs> so i we'll just tease four weeks ahead. But that is it for this episode of the formal uh, podcast episode. Uh, again, if you are listening to the podcast episode, check us out on YouTube for the YouTube After Show. In the meantime, I am Drew Freeman. Thank you, Alex Sullivan. Thank you again, Philip Babbage. Uh, and we are going to return to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you.
0: And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.